Over 24% of the 1.9 billion square acres in America alone, the mountains that so many people call home, also play host to some of the most staggering mysteries in the world. The missing. And she said, I knew I wasn't there anymore. The murdered. All my emotions just went blank, just like, just blank. And I still live with that today. I think about that so much today as he was in that water. Strange creatures. Whatever it was that was standing up. I'm out here looking through the window now and I don't see anything. I don't want to go outside. I mean, it was a, nope, we need to get out of town. Unexplained lights and sightings. It does not look like an airplane. They come together and then they separate and they just keep doing this all the time. These stories may be strange. They may be sad. They may be odd but they are mysterious. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and now your host, Chris Sloan. It's hard to imagine. But it happened. For 44 days, she was tortured, raped, beaten, and made to suffer inhumanely. And several people knew what was happening to her. They participated by either allowing it to happen or committing the acts themselves. Junko Furuta was a beautiful 17-year-old girl from Japan, and she was kidnapped, raped, and tortured on a level that is unimaginable. And then she was finally killed. It was by people she knew in many cases. In Japanese, Yakuza translates into the extreme path and is also associated with the term gangsters. You see, there's a lot of people in Japan that fear this specific organization because of the extremities that many in that organization will go to. More specifically in this case, the Yakuza is a transnational organized crime syndicate that operates out of Japan. Even the Japanese police and media, by request of the authorities, refer to them as Buyokuden, which translated means violent groups, while the Yakuza themselves call themselves Ninkyodante, which means chivalrous organization. Junko was held prisoner at a very low-level Yakuza wannabe's house where he lived with his parents, who were so afraid of him that they never intervened on Junko's behalf. Well, for the first while she was there, her captors made it seem as if she was his girlfriend. But that soon changed as the boys determined that the parents weren't going to notify the authorities. They were too frightened. He had numerous friends come over to abuse her however they desired. Some of that included torture, like starvation, beatings, the burning of eyelids and legs, and some of it, 
was rape until they grew tired of her. There were more forms of torture and abuse, and that will become all too evident as we take this harrowing trip. This episode comes with a very strong graphic warning attached. It's not for kids, and it's sure as hell not for the weak-hearted. But what it is, is a horrific truth. There will be excessively graphic depictions and language, as we attempt, but probably will come nowhere close to bringing you the actual story of a teenage girl from the land of the rising sun and her last 44 days on this earth. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is episode number 55, 44 Days in Hell, the Mountain Mysteries story of Junko Faruta. The Land of the Rising Sun Japan is made up of beautiful landscapes, a rich heritage, and most people believe in respect and honoring that heritage, and they find strength and comfort in their ways. It's also a place where technology is prevalent in everyday life for most people. Junko's story takes place in a place that you may not be too familiar with. Misato Sayatama is about 12 and a half miles from downtown Tokyo. The Edogawa River runs to the eastern border of the town. Ah, this place is pretty much residential. Most people travel to Tokyo for work from there. Not too much in the line of industry in Misato Sayatama. This is where Junko Furuta was born in January of 1971 and lived most of her short life here. Now, even though she had the image of being a good girl, she was still considered to be very popular. Let me expel any thoughts before they can even start. She was never known to live what anyone would consider to be a risky kind of lifestyle. Well, all except going to high school. She went to Yoshido Minama High School, where she held high grades and was almost never absent. And she worked at a plastic molding factory part-time. She was saving money up for a graduation trip that she had planned. And she also had just accepted a job at an electronics retailer, and had intended to work for them for a while after graduating high school before moving on to college. Junko was the kind of girl that had friends practically everywhere she went, never met a stranger, and always had a smile and a kind word for people that she knew, and even that she didn't know alike. This was the kind of girl that people wanted to be around, and when they were, they felt better for it. She took things like honor and respect very seriously, and loyalty to her family and friends were extremely important. That loyalty was lived, not just talked about. She was taught to play by the rules, and this very well may have played, to some degree, into her murder. Junko seemed to have a bright future ahead of her. It was in high school that she had an assortment of friends from all walks of life, and there were some that were simply arm's length acquaintances those acquaintances would prove to be deadly one of these was a boy named hiroshi miano miano was known to be the school bully and loved to show off and brag about his involvement in a criminal organization known as the yakuza you see miano had a crush on junko oh it was a bad one too and during class one day he had asked her out and was promptly rejected in front of the entire class. And that 
enraged him. You see, Miano wasn't used to being told no. Prosecutors suspect that Junko's murder had roots in this behavior. And Miano's behavior was allegedly so out of control and violent that his own parents feared him. They feared for their own safety, their very lives, because of the alleged ties and connections to organized crime that he alluded to have. Even this would have a prominent impact on Junko's death. Miano had been in trouble with law enforcement before Junko. Oh yeah, he had spent time in juvie for pickpocketing, extortion, and the much larger and more serious crime of rape. He had once told another inmate at Chiba Prison that he loved to tie women up with a 100 square of rope and then have his way. Seems like the motive lay with Miano, more so than anyone else, but everyone else who took part in this were simply opportunist. Or so it would seem. But then we consider the fact that so many people knew about this, as it was happening, and they didn't do anything to stop it. Aren't they just as guilty? Miano, the low-level wannabe Yakuza thug, was referred to as Boy A in court documents. Well, this was because he was underage at the time of the crime. But a Japanese magazine got a hold of these four boys' identities and said that due to the nature and severity of their crimes that they deserved no anonymity. Well, I couldn't agree more. They would turn out to be four boys that were primarily involved in the kidnapping, captivity, rape, and murder of Junko all claimed to be associated in one form or another with the Yakuza. Each had a lengthy criminal background that included gang rape, extortion, pickpocketing, and an assortment of other charges. But Hiroshi Miyano seemed to have been the ringleader of this particularly disgusting assault and murder because of the crush he had on Junko and the relevant fact that she shot him down right in front of their peers in class. It would have devastating consequences. Thanksgiving is always celebrated in the United States on the third Thursday of November, regardless of the date. However, in Japan, it is date specific. It's always on November 23rd. Doesn't matter what day it is. Two days after Thanksgiving on November 25th, 1988, it was a chilled and damp night in Tokyo. Junko had just finished her shift at the plastic molding factory and gets on her bicycle to make her track home. At the same time, Hiroshi Minyano and Nabaru Minato are on the streets looking for their next victim to rob and rape. Well, they had done this so many times before that they had nearly become experts in picking targets. It was at 8.30 in the evening that they spot Junko riding her bike, and under the orders of Miyano, Minato approaches Junko and kicks her bike out from under her. Well, she falls off and Miyano runs to his sister, under the guise that it was simply coincidental timing. He just happened to be there and saw the whole thing happen. Or at least that's what he told her. Then he runs over and helps her up and asks her if she would like an escort home for her own protection and then started making his brags and claims about his affiliation with the Yakuza, which was a lie. But, shaken and scared, Junko accepted his offer. So now the wheels of fate begin to turn, and she starts her trip into destiny. 
He eventually led Junko to an abandoned warehouse. Started to kiss her and then tried to fondle her. Well, she resisted his advances. But it was at this point that he told her something that changed everything. He told her that if she resisted, he would have his contacts and friends in Yakuza kill her entire family. So Junko, she didn't struggle much after that. She believed him. She thought his claims were true. So for the next 44 days, Junko would endure rape and torture in the thought, at least up to some point, of keeping her family safe. Miyano then took Junko to a hotel after the warehouse where he initially raped her and then assaulted her again. After that, he called Minato. He also called Joe Ogura and Yasushi Wanabe and bragged to them about the rape. Ogura supposedly asked Miyano to keep her in captivity to allow numerous people to sexually assault her. End quote. That's what the article in the paper said or in the magazine. The group had a history of gang rape and they had recently just kidnapped and raped some other girl. But they released her afterwards. Around 3 o'clock in the morning, Miyano took Fatura to a neighboring park where Minato, Ogura, and Wannabe were waiting. They had learned her home address from a notebook in her backpack and told her that they knew where she lived and that Yakuza members would kill her family if she tried to escape. The four boys overpowered her, took her to a house in the Ayasi district of Arichi, and gang-raped her again. The house, which was owned, by the way, by Minato's parents, soon became the regular hangout for the gang. Junko would not leave this house alive. Junko Furuda endured 44 days of agonizing hell in the last days of her life at the hands of wannabe gangsters who were little more than kids trying to make themselves out to be something that would destroy the lives of families as well as their own. What follows is a rough account of the final days in the life of Junko Furuda. Days 1 through 10. Beginning on November 25th, 1988. Junko was kidnapped and raped multiple times. She's kept captive in Miano's parents' house and posed as one of the boy's girlfriends. Junko will be raped over 400 times in total. She was forced to call her parents and tell them that she had ran away. Junko was starved and suffered from malnutrition. She was fed cockroaches to eat and forced to drink her own urine. Junko was forced to masturbate and strip in front of others and burned with cigarette lighters and had fireworks set off in her ears, mouth, and her vagina. Junko also had foreign objects inserted into her vagina and anus, including a still-lit light bulb. Days 11 through 19. Junko was severely beaten countless times. Her face was held against the concrete and ground and jumped on. Her hands were tied to the ceiling and her body used as a punching bag until her damaged internal organs made blood run from her mouth. 
Junko's nose filled with so much blood that she could only breathe through her mouth. Dumbbells were dropped onto Junko's stomach. Junko vomited when she tried to drink water, but her stomach couldn't accept it. Junko tried to escape, and at one point, she called the police but was unable to inform them of what was happening before the boys got to her. She was punished by the scumbags by them taking cigarettes and burning her arms. Then, they poured a flammable liquid on her feet and legs, then lit her on fire. They inserted a bottle into her anus, causing severe injury. Days 20 through 29. Junko is not able to walk properly because of severe leg burns. She is beaten without mercy with bamboo sticks. The scum inserted more fireworks into her anus and lit them. Junko's hands are then smashed by weights and her fingernails are cracked. Then she was beaten with a golf club. Cigarettes were inserted into her vagina and forced to drink her own urine as they stood by and laughed at her. She was beaten with iron rods repeatedly. Then, in the cold of winter, near the end of December, Junko was forced outside to sleep on a balcony with little, if any, protection from the weather. Skewers of grilled chicken was inserted into Junko's vagina and anus, causing bleeding. And yet she'd almost escaped. One time she reached the telephone, but one of the boys caught her just in time again and ended the call for help. They punished her by taunting her with a candle flame and finally dousing her legs in lighter fluid again and setting her on fire. That was punishment for her trying to run away. She went into convulsions. The boys would later say that they thought she was faking the seizure. They set her on fire again, then put it out. She survived that round. Days 30 through 39. Junko had hot wax dripped on her face. Her eyelids burned by a cigarette lighter. Junko was stabbed with sewing needles in her chest area. Her left nipple was cut and destroyed with pliers. Then, they inserted a hot light bulb into her vagina. Junko suffered heavy bleeding from her vagina because the boys had inserted scissors inside of her. At this point, Junko's injuries are so severe that she cannot urinate properly. Junko's injuries are so terrible that it took her over an hour to crawl downstairs to use the bathroom, and she couldn't make it in time. Junko's eardrums are brutally damaged, so much so that she can't hear and respond to what these scumbags are saying to her, and that enrages them and leads to more torture. Junko suffers an extremely reduced brain size. Day 40 until the end of her life. Now Junko begs her tormentors to, quote, kill me and get it over with. January 1st, 1989. Junko greets the New Year's Day alone. Her body is mutilated, and she can't move from the ground. The final day. January 4th, 1989.
The four boys beat her mutilated body with an iron barbell, using a loss at the game of Mahjong as a pretext. She was profusely bleeding from her mouth and nose. They put a candle flame to her face and eyes. Then, when you think it couldn't get any worse, once again they take lighter fluid and pour it onto her legs, arms, and face, as well as her stomach, and then lit her on fire. This final torture lasted for two hours. Junko Faruda died later that day, in pain and alone, only days from her birthday. Nothing could compare to the 44 days of suffering she had gone through. It was then that the brother of one of the boys contacted Miano and said that he thought she was dead. He had fed her in secret throughout some of this time, but it was far too little and far too late. To dispose of her tortured body, they placed her in a 50-gallon drum that they had filled with concrete and disposed of her like trash in the park. There are so many parts to this story that are tragic, but maybe none more so than the fact that Junko very well could have been, and indeed was, almost rescued. Twice, the police were alerted to Faruta's condition, and they failed to intervene both times. The first time, a boy who had been invited over to the Minato house by Miano went home after seeing Faruta and told his brother about what was happening and the brother then decided to tell his parents who contacted the police. Well, the authorities did show up at the Minato residence, but they were assured by the family that there was no girl inside. They even invited police in and the cops took that as enough evidence that there was no foul play going on. The answer was clearly satisfactory enough for the police as they never returned to the home. Both cops were fired for failure to follow protocol. And that led to Junko not getting the help that she so urgently needed. The second time, it was Faruta herself who called the cops, but before she was able to say anything, the boys found her. When the police called back, Miano assured them that the prior call had been a mistake. The authorities never followed up after that. The boys then punished Junko for calling the cops, like we told you, drenching her legs in lighter fluid and setting her on fire. Then... There was Minato's parents. What about them? Why didn't they stop this in its tracks? Well, at first, they said they were under the assumption that Junko was their son's girlfriend. But she sure spent a hell of a lot of time there, enough to make anyone believe that she had all but moved in. Though Faruda's parents had called the police and reported their daughter missing, the boys made sure the cops wouldn't go looking for her, making her call home and say that she had ran away and was staying with a friend, but she was okay. Whenever Minato's parents were around, Junko was made to pose as his girlfriend, but they eventually gave up that ruse. They knew something wasn't right. Unfortunately, the threat of the Yakuza coming after them was enough to keep them quiet, and for 44 days... Manado's parents lived in alarming ignorance of the real-life horror story that was unfolding in their own home. 
less than 24 hours after her death. Minato's brother called to tell him that Faruta appeared to be dead. Afraid of being penalized for murder, the boys wrapped her body in blankets and shoved her into a travel bag. They then put her body in a 55 U.S. gallon drum and filled it with wet concrete. Around 8 o'clock that night, they loaded it and eventually disposed of the drum into a cement truck in Koto, Tokyo. During her captivity, Faruta had mentioned to her captor several times that she regretted not being able to watch the final episode of Tonbo Dragonfly, which was a TV series. Miyano found the videotape of the episode and placed it in the travel bag also. But as he later explained, it wasn't because he pitied Faruta, but because he did not want her to return as a ghost and haunt him. On January 23, 1989, Miyano and Agura were arrested for the gang rape of the 19-year-old girl whom they had kidnapped in December. On the 29th of March, 1989, two police officers came to interrogate them, as women's underwear had been found at their addresses. During the interrogation, Miano believed that one of the officers was aware of his responsibility in Faruta's murder. Thinking that Joe Agura had confessed to the crimes against Faruta, Miano told the police where to find Faruta's body. Well, at first, the police were initially confused by the acknowledgement of a crime that they didn't even know about, as they'd been referring to the murder of a completely different woman and her seven-year-old son that had occurred nine days prior to Faruta's abduction, a case which remains unsolved to this day. The police found the drum containing Faruta's body the following day. She had to be identified using fingerprints. On April 1st, 1989, Joe Agura was arrested for a separate sexual assault, and consequently re-arrested for Faruta's murder. The arrest of Wantabi, Minato, and Minato's brother soon followed. Several other accomplices who participated in Faruta's abuse were officially identified, including Tetsuo Nakamura and Kochi Ahara. They were charged with rape after their DNA was found on and inside the victim's body. The identities of the boys were sealed by the court as they were all juveniles at the time of the crime, but journalists from the Shukan Banshun magazine discovered their identities, though, and boy, did they put them out there. They said that given the severity of the crime, the accused didn't deserve to have any right to anonymity. Agreed. All four boys pled guilty to committing bodily injury that resulted in death instead of murder. This is where you're going to get pissed off. This would have what many consider to this day a disastrous impact on their sentences and a downright travesty of justice. In July of 1990, a lower court sentenced Hiroshi Miyano, the leader of this crime, to 17 years in prison. He appealed his sentence, but Tokyo High Court judge sentenced him to an additional three years in prison. The 20-year sentence is the second longest sentence given in Japan before life imprisonment. He was 18 at the time of the murder. Miyano's mother reportedly paid 50 million yen, which is the equivalent of only 425,000 U.S. dollars in compensation. That was ordered by the civil court after selling their family home. Miano was denied parole in 2004 and was released from prison in 2009. In January of 2013, Miano was rearrested for fraud 
Due to insufficient evidence, though, he was released without charge later that month. Nobuharu Minato, now known as Shinji Minato, originally received a four to six year sentence. He was resentenced to five to nine years by a judge upon appeal. He was 16 at the time of the murder. Minato's parents and brother were not charged. Junko's parents were dismayed by the sentences received by their daughter's killers and did, in fact, win a civil suit against the parents of Minato, in whose home the crimes were committed. After his release, Minato moved in with his mother. However, in 2018, Minato was arrested again for attempted murder after beating a 32-year-old man with a metal rod and slashing his throat with a knife. Yasushi Wannabe, who was originally sentenced to three to four years in prison, received an upgraded sentence of five to seven years. He was 17 at the time of the murder. For his role in the crime, Joe Agura served eight years in a juvenile prison before he was released in August of 1999. He was 17 at the time of the murder. After his release, he took the family name Kamasaku when he was adopted by a supporter of his. He is said to have bragged about his role in the kidnapping, rape, and torture of Junko. In July of 2004, he was arrested for assaulting Takatoshi Asana, an acquaintance he thought his girlfriend may have been involved with. Ogura tracked Asano down, beat him, and shoved him into his truck, then drove Asanu from Adichi to his mother's bar in Masato, where he allegedly beat Asano for hours. During that time, Ogura repeatedly threatened to kill the man, telling him that he had killed before and knew how to get away with it. Ogura's mother allegedly vandalized Faruta's grave, stating that Junko had ruined her son's life. It had also been reported that Ogura had depleted his father's savings money, which was intended to provide restitution to Junko's family, and instead he took that money and bought a number of luxury goods for himself. A lot of people believe the sentences were too light for the brutality of these crimes. Junko Faruta's funeral was held April 2, 1989. One of her friend's memorial addresses stated the following. Sun-chan, welcome back. I have never imagined that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard the principal has presented you with a graduation certificate. So, we graduated together, all of us. Sun-chan, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. The sad addition to this story is the fact that these killers not only destroyed one life, but two. You see, Junko was pregnant when she died. Junko's intended future employer presented her parents with a uniform that she would have worn in the position that she had already accepted. The uniform was placed in her casket. At her graduation, Junko's school principal did in fact present her with a high school diploma which was given to her parents. The location where Junko's body was discovered has since been developed into what is now known as Wakasu Park. At the time, Japanese people were concerned about the U.S.-influenced epidemic of violent crime. It's what they called the American disease. 
Turns out it's not just an American issue, it's a worldwide issue. In 1988 and 1989, we fought over some stupid things. Things that were trivial. And some of which, not so much. Some were worth the fight. That's not changed. The fight to keep Junko's memory alive? That's definitely worth it. If anything, violence has escalated. But maybe so can love and so can peace. Remember to help us by becoming a Patreon subscriber and get early access to all episodes and more. And don't miss the Mountain Mysteries gatherings Thursday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on YouTube, Twitch, and other locations. I'm Chris Lone for the Mountain Mysteries. <laughs>